from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Today, we're going to revisit the issue of Ibogaine. Ibogaine, the uh, extraordinary psychedelic substance from that emerges from the aboga plant in Gabon. We did talk about this about a year ago on the episode with Dimitri Mugianis, but I wanted to come back to this, and I asked around, who should I have as a guest? And the name that kept popping up is Hattie Wells. Uh, Hattie lives in the UK. She's been a psychedelic practitioner um, for many years, she's an ethnobotanist. She's also been involved in drug policy reform. She's got over 20 years experience researching and working with psychedelics. She's been an Ibogaine treatment provider in the UK for several years now. And she's also working on a couple of clinical trials, one involving Ibogaine, the other one about a drug called 5-MeO-DMT, which we've not yet really gotten into on Psychoactive. And she's worked for Transform, which is the UK-based drug policy reform organization, and for the Beckley Foundation, headed by Amanda Fielding, and also now working for ICERS which is one of the leading organizations in the world involved in research on psychedelics and advocacy. It's been the host of the World Ayahuasca Congress. And I guess I should finally say that she's a director of the Breaking Convention, which is the UK's largest convention on psychedelic consciousness. So, Hattie, thank you so much for joining me and my listeners today on Psychoactive. Hi, Ethan. Thank you so much for inviting me. Okay, well, let's start off by just talking about the basics of Ibogaine. And I'll, I'll be quite frank with our audience. I've always been scared of Ibogaine. I mean, I've tried many of the psychedelics, even those that have a reputation for causing you to throw up or things like that. But, but Ibogaine, you know, just seems bigger 
and better and maybe more powerful in its uh, therapeutic value. I know that some people will do it at lower doses for kind of self-exploration and spiritual insight, but it's most famous for its use in the treatment of addiction and use at higher doses. What do we know among the thousands or tens of thousands of reports of people having done this about the variety and commonality among experience with, with high-dose Ibogaine in terms of treating addiction. Okay, so Ethan, it's interesting that you think of it as the kind of bigger, badder psychedelic, because actually, as far as psychedelics go, it's a relatively benign entheogen in terms of its um, in terms of its strength of kind of visionary experience. So the experience itself is characterized by what people term sort of waking dreams, internal visions, but most of that is with eyes closed. So it's actually quite easy to pull yourself out of it. And, you know, if you don't like what you're seeing, to open your eyes. And, you know, you don't have the kind of pronounced ego dissolution or dismemberment or typical sort of peak or mystical experience that you might have on other psychedelics. So in that respect, you know, it's perhaps not as daunting as people have people tend to think or have made out. But obviously the length of the experience, you know, is is for most people somewhat daunting because it does last, you know, depending on the dose you take. But if we're talking about kind of flood dose or saturation dose, the higher end, which is anything really above 12 milligrams per kilogram to 20 milligrams per, per kilogram, although people don't tend to go that high anymore. But that um, that can last anywhere from sort of 24, 36, 48 hours, really. So that is the piece that I think, you know, might make Ibogaine seem somewhat daunting. You are sort of immobilized. So you'll be lying down on a bed for at least at least sort of 16, 18 hours without moving and you can't move. Uh, and that that is definitely an intense experience. And many people purge, many people do vomit, but that's not, you know, that's not guaranteed. Some people don't. Mm -hmm. Some people will go through without vomiting, without any kind of purging. I mean, in terms of needing diapers, I don't, you know, that's not something, <laughs> that's not something that <laughs> I've experienced. Most people can get up and walk to the toilet if they need to go to the toilet mm -hmm. with a bit of assistance, obviously, with a bit mm -hmm. of assistance because your balance is definitely affected. Uh, balance and movement is dramatically affected. So you might think that you put your leg in one place, but actually you're putting it in a different place. Your, your whole sense of where you're placing things changes dramatically. And then I've heard it also described as like acid times a million. I mean, is that bullshit or it really depends which lens you're looking at it through? Well, that's what I was trying to say earlier. You know, I would say that's 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 not anything that I've seen or experienced personally. You know, acid, your visuals can be completely overwhelming to the extent that you, you know, especially high dose of acid, that you can't see anything in the room and everything's melting. You would never get that kind of experience on Ibogaine. You know, your typical Ibogaine experience, although this does probably only happen for half of people, but, you know, the experience we talk about is one of a sort of vivid memory recall for the first six to eight hours, a kind of life flashback as if you're watching your life, you know, on a movie screen or a sort of movie reel. But you're watching it from an objective point of view. You're not emotionally involved or triggered by that experience, there is some sort of detachment. Whereas if you were experiencing those kind of visions on LSD or any other kind of classic psychedelic, you would be very emotionally involved in that living of those visuals. And that's one of the most common traits of the high-dose Ibogaine experience, that sort of memory recall in a kind of detached sort of way? Yeah. So the high-dose Ibogaine experience tends to happen in sort of three phases. So you'll have your first kind of, you know, six to 10 hours, let's say, where it's that kind of thing. It's internal visions, waking dream. They might be thoughts or stories that are, that are, you know, depending on how visually oriented you are, they may be visual, they may not, they may just be thoughts, but it can be kind of life flashback, memory recall, reliving events, understanding the pattern of events, understanding why something happened the way it did and having some sense of, um, kind of objectivity around it, which help, which can help you to see things in a different way. That period can also be accompanied by very vivid hallucinations, but that is in the minority of people. So for myself personally, I did have 3D hallucinations 
more real than anything I've had with any other psychedelic, but I am, I am in a real minority. Like I don't know many other people that have had that experience, but it, mm-hmm. but it can happen. You can have very vivid hallucinations. And then the next phase is a, is a period of deep introspection. And that's the phase that I think gives Ibogaine a unique character. It really sort of sets it apart from all the other psychedelics that we're currently working with and researching in that after you've had this visual sort of peak experience, you then have this long contemplative, introspective, reflective period where you're definitely still under the effect. You know, for me, this period is the bit where you could engage in more psycholytic therapy. I think we might get to that point at some, you know, in some stage where that would be where interesting therapeutic discussions could take place. And then you get another, the third phase, which is kind of the residual where you're still, you still might be stimulated because obviously it's a stimulant and it's very hard to sleep on Ibogaine. So you might feel kind of wired. And for people experiencing addiction or substance use disorder, they, that third phase tends to be kind of jangly. They don't feel that great because it's difficult to relax. But, you know, that, that phase can also be quite useful for introspection. Now, just to be a, play the role of a bit of a skeptic here, you know, sometimes you hear this debate, like when people take, I don't know if it's ayahuasca or some other <coughs> psychedelic plant substance in, you know, from South America, the frequency of seeing the jaguar, for example. And then the question becomes, does this just happen spontaneously, even among people who have never heard of the association of the psychedelic with the jaguar? Or is it somehow kind of implanted in the, in the culture? And with respect to this memory recall, I mean, people are obviously told beforehand that this is what they might expect does that precondition them you think to have this type of detached kind of memory recall experience or is it something just you know even if people are not prepped to know that that it's going to be happening anyway it's a very interesting question and i think it's difficult to determine because no one's really looked at that although actually i did hear recently that there has been a study with other psychedelics looking at that, how how the prompts before the experience affect the experience and that they clearly do. I mean, you would imagine that if you're told X and Y is going to happen, that it's more likely that X and Y happens, right? And like I said earlier, you know, this vivid memory recall doesn't happen with everybody. But I think there's also a distinction to be made between people using this for um, addiction you know, to interrupt their addiction or people using this for self-development, spiritual purposes, curiosity, because the experience differs quite, you know, it's quite a pronounced difference between those groups of people. And often, especially if you're, you know, you're an opioid user, the psychedelic effects are somewhat blunted, you know, so the visual component and that memory recall might be blunted. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, I mean, just speaking, I don't know if this has really been measured in studies as yet, but your subjective experience as a treatment provider, does the strong memory recall, does that associate with better outcomes for people in terms of dealing with their addiction issues? Or can people have just as good outcomes with just as great frequency if they don't go through the memory recall element? Yeah, so in my experience, I would say that it does. You know, the, the, what I was kind of describing is the archetypal trip, the memory recall, the introspection, you know, those three phases um, tended to, the stronger the sort of visionary experience tended to have better long-term effects. But, that, you know, that's just in my observation of maybe 60, 70 people that I facilitated sessions for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm not aware, really, you know, no one's actually looked at that properly because there's obviously a lack of clinical studies. Right, right. And and so um, just, I mean, I imagine among our listeners, there's going to be some who are curious about whether or not they should take it, either for spiritual insight or for dealing with addiction. I imagine there's even more who have a friend or relative who's struggling with addiction and they want to know if this might be helpful. And a lot of others are just curious about, you know, how this is similar or different to the other ones. So just to kind of um, take us through some of the process and maybe in terms of the treatments that you've provided, um, what's the process? I mean, first of all, how to people, you know, you know, come into contact with you? And then what sorts of clearance do you have to do so that some people are probably told that they're not eligible to do this? And then how's it consumed, uh, the setting? Just walk us through all that. 
Okay, so let's just be clear. So I'm not providing Ibogaine treatments uh, in an informal way anymore. I'm just working mm -hmm. on a clinical trial. So, you know, there's, there's various routes you can take to experiencing Ibogaine. So there would obviously be the clinical trial angle, but there's only a couple of countries where that's happening. So that's fairly limited at the moment. You know, it's absolutely crucial to find an Ibogaine provider where there is some sort of medical supervision or assistance because Ibogaine does have cardiac implications and there are risks associated. So it's really important that you're with a provider who understands those risks and who can manage them should they occur. Um, because there's, you know, there's, there's over 100 clinics around the world and some of them are medically supervised and some are not. And then there's probably tens more of just individuals offering treatments in an informal way. So it's really important to be clear about the cardiac risks and so that you go in informed about them and, and looking for an appropriate practitioner. But let's say your practitioner is informed about this, has medical supervision, is going to monitor your vital signs, is going to insist that you have an ECG prior to the experience. Um, I mean, preferably that you're monitored with an ECG throughout the experience, but that's quite rare these days, but I would definitely recommend looking for that. So you want to check your heart and you want to check your liver function, really. And you want to check your electrolyte balance. So they're the kind of main safety sort of checks. And what's the importance of the uh, liver function one? Well, just, you know, to see how your liver's functioning, because obviously your liver function will determine how you metabolize the drug. And poor metabolizers, you know, then there's an extra risk of uh, spike levels of of ibogaine and noribogaine having a greater effect on your heart, really. So you want to be okay. careful. You mentioned nor noribogaine, so maybe we should just interject here. Is that what ibogaine becomes in the body once it's consumed, or is it? Yeah. What so exactly I, is that? Yeah. So ibogaine is converted to noribogaine. It's a, it's its metabolite, but it lasts much longer in the body. And levels of both of them have different implications on cardiac risks. Um, so you need to get that checked out. I mean, ideally, you wouldn't have a history of cardiac problems in your family. Um, you would, you know, not have a history of any psychosis. You wouldn't want to be, well, again, different providers are different with this, but there's certain medications that you'd want to avoid taking. So if you were on them, you'd need to taper off them and have some assistance tapering off them because some drugs will interact negatively with ibogaine. But when you say about interactions, is it like with SSRIs, where I think with ayahuasca, you're not supposed to have, you're not supposed to be using that? What can you say? So yeah, SSRIs, ideally, I mean, like if I was working, I would want people to come off their, their SSRIs. The risk of Ibogaine with, for your heart is that it can cause something called QT prolongation, uh, which is basically elongating the wave between your Q and your T waves on your ECG. And that's really about heart contracting and relaxing so it can lead to kind of an abnormal heart rhythm which can lead to a fatality so if you're on any other drug that is also prolonging your QT intervals then you would want to you would want to come off them because that plus the ibogaine's prolongation could cause a significant risk you just want to eliminate mm -hmm. that risk so there's a variety of drugs, you know, antihistamines, antipsychotics, antidepressants. Some providers will work with with people on those drugs, but taking all the right precautions, like monitoring on an ECG the whole way through, um, you know, having assistance at hand should there be any problems. But that's why you need the medical supervision, really. And then, so aside the kind of medical exclusion, you know, various reasons for medic for, for exclusion. Uh, you would also want to do some significant preparation um, just to get yourself well informed about Ibogaine and the risks you would be taking and the potential experience you would be having. So any provider would, would do some psych education, which is just giving you all that information beforehand. And then, you know, ideally you'd maybe have two or three prep sessions. You'd get to know your provider. You'd want to, you'd want to establish really good rapport. You'd need to feel safe with that person because they're obviously going to be holding space for you during a long and potentially intense experience. And then ensure that they will also offer you some integration after the experience because, you know, this is something that we're all talking about in psychedelic 
therapy, the need for integration, um, not only to be able to integrate a potentially difficult experience, but also to harvest the lessons and insights that you get from, from you know, a uh, less challenging experience, just to help you kind of land again and move mm-hmm. forward with the insights that you've got. We haven't really honed a kind of standard method and everyone has their own way of doing this. But I think it's really important. This is one of the reasons that I sort of stepped away from Ibogaine treatment years ago was the fact that people would come and have this very profound experience. But if there hadn't been enough preparation or integration, which often is a cost issue, people just simply can't afford it, then, you know, that Ibogaine tends to unearth various issues in your life that you've been struggling with. And if you go back into your same environment, then you're walking back in and, you know, you're going to experience various various triggers again. And if there isn't the appropriate integration, you're very likely to just sort of fall back into old patterns. And that may be addiction if you've come for addiction interruption. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second-grade teacher, and written by my husband, Clark, an eternal second-grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. It's not just about the immediate, you know, coming down from and day after, but we're really talking mm. about, for many people, a sustained period of time, like 
going to see yeah. a psychotherapist or seeing like that, you know, on a weekly basis or a monthly basis or, you know, checking in. Leading up to it then, in terms of, uh, I mean, people are obviously using Ibogaine for a variety of addictions. There's the opioid one, which I think is the one it's most known for, but also alcohol or stimulants, cocaine, maybe even nicotine. Mm-hmm. What's the recommendation in terms of abstaining from any of those drugs before the Ibogaine treatment for how long, how necessary it is, how much does it vary, whether it's a stimulant or an opioid, for example? I mean, so again, this varies from treatment provider to treatment provider, and some people are much bolder and more allowing of of continuing your drug of choice. And it also depends on whether you're going for a flood dose or a slow dose protocol. But let's kind of, maybe the easiest way of explaining it would be to take you know, to take some examples. So, you know, you would basically look at the half-life of your drug of choice and you would want to give at least that time period before you take the Ibogaine. Ideally, you'd want to leave 24 hours, really, Mm -hmm. from your last dose to your Ibogaine. Now, in terms of alcohol, actually, I never worked with anyone with an alcohol disorder. And I know that withdrawal from alcohol is a lot more dangerous and presents with a lot more issues and I because I've not done a protocol with alcohol I couldn't I couldn't really speak to that so let's just eliminate alcohol from this discussion and just talk about um, opioids or stimulants and with the opioids does that mean that people are already if, if it's methadone or or uh, heroin that they're actually in some state of withdrawal oftentimes by the time they take the ibogaine yeah so that's what happens when they come to take the ibogaine they will the withdrawal symptoms will probably just be presenting so the protocol that i used um withdrawal would just be presenting i would then administer a test dose which is like one to two hundred milligrams of ibogaine and then that would that would sort of take the edge off the withdrawal and it would show us, you know, how the person responded to the Ibogaine. And then we would then do the flood dose after that. So effectively, you don't really enter the withdrawal period. You're just sort of skirting on the edge of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess the thing that's really maybe most astounding about Ibogaine, apart from this kind of detached sort of memory recall, is the fact that it seems to alleviate or even disappear the withdrawal symptoms that one so oftentimes associates with opioid withdrawal. And that does not seem to be true of any of the other psychedelics that are being used in addiction treatment. And so do we have any understanding as yet about, I mean, what that's about? What do we know about that, you know, interruption of the withdrawal? symptoms. Well, that's kind of the most astounding thing about Ibogaine, really. And that is how, I mean, that's how we discovered Ibogaine's anti-addiction sort of potential was because Howard Lotsoff in the 60s um, decided to take Ibogaine in an experimental way with various friends as a psychedelic experience. And he happened to be a heroin user. uh, And he realized after you know he came down from his ibogaine trip that he hadn't experienced withdrawal and he no longer had any withdrawal symptoms and there were seven heroin users among his 20 friends who were experimenting with it and they all experienced the same thing so there definitely is something to ibogaine whereby it it dramatically um, reduces withdrawal symptoms if not eliminates them and in terms of you know, how that happens, why that happens, we're still not entirely clear. The pharmacology of Ibogaine is still, you know, it's a bit blurry. We've got some ideas of of how it works and the various neurotransmitter sites that it targets. But I think as for actually explaining how it stops withdrawal, I think we're still somewhat in the dark there. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty well documented now, right, across thousands of people having this almost miraculous absence of, I mean, for people who've been addicted to opioids for many years, uh, people who are on heroin, people wanting to, you know, who have been on methadone for a long time and want to getting off it. It's, um, I mean, it's, it's a, basically it happens for everybody or almost everybody. This, this, uh, yeah, I would say, I would say, I mean, in my own experience, probably for kind of 80% of people there, you know, there are a small number, especially methadone users, actually, you know, long-term methadone users may experience still some withdrawal symptoms, but uh, they're dramatically reduced. Yeah. 
Well, actually, maybe this is a good place to bring up the study that you're engaged in with ICERs right now, right? Which is about, you know, kind of innovative approach to trying to help people who want to get off methadone. I mean, obviously, for many people who are on methadone, it can be a lifelong medication. It can be very successful. But there are many people, for one reason or another, who do want to get off it. What can you say about that study that you're currently engaged in? Okay, so I'm not actually currently engaged with the ICS methadone study. Uh, I mm -hmm. have done some consultancy with ICS, but I'm actually working with the Demerex Ibogaine study, uh, mm -hmm. which will be working with opioid users. But we're still in the healthy volunteer phase. But I, I can, I can definitely discuss the ICS study a bit, although they haven't published their results yet. Mm -hmm. They've got 20. Uh, methadone users, and they are using a slow dose protocol, which is just worth talking about now because there's, I think I've mainly been talking about the sort of flood saturation dose, which is what I worked with, you know, almost 20 years ago. But now people are, are moving away from that because of the cardiac implications and because of the deaths that have occurred. There is a move, I would say, towards this slower dose protocol, which is using Ibogaine in a way to kind of taper down your opioid use. So the ICS study, I think, gives six doses. It split the group into two groups, and each group receives a dose of Ibogaine. One, the, one group gets six doses of 100 milligrams, and the other gets an ascending dose. So 100 milligrams, then 200, 300, 600, 800. I can't remember how it goes, but they have six doses of, of an escalating dose. And with each of those doses, they reduce their methadone use by half. So they're effectively tapering down their methadone and also being administered Ibogaine at the same time, which, you know, uh, supposedly will eliminate the withdrawal symptoms and sort of flood the system over a number of days with Ibogaine mm -hmm. instead of that immediate flood dose, which potentially has more risks. Mm -hmm. And these are generally people who have been fairly stabilized on methadone when they're yeah. in the study? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, they've been on a methadone program, and I think, you know, I think I can say they haven't had, yeah, they haven't had any adverse events yet, no hospitalized, well, no serious adverse events and no hospitalization yet. So, and I, I hear they have very promising results, but it's not published yet. Okay. And, yeah. okay. and what about the study that you're engaged in in the UK? So this is a single dose study. Um, it's a phase one and phase two A study. So it, it's currently in healthy volunteers and. There's four cohorts, so each group will receive first group three milligrams, next group three milligrams per kilogram, next group six milligrams per kilogram, next group nine milligrams per kilogram. And if all of them have been safe and tolerated, then it'll move up to 12 milligrams per kilogram, which is kind of the target dose of a number of clinics around the world. So we're looking at the tolerabil tolerability really and the safety, and there's a lot of um, ECG monitoring and looking at the QT interval throughout the experience to see. When you say per kilogram, you mean of their own body weight. So in other words, the, yeah. the assumption is that there's reason to believe that the dose should be a reflection of somebody's body weight. Yes, exactly. Why is that? Well, because, I mean, I guess with lots of, uh, you know, mental health drugs, psychiatric drugs, they do that. They dose according to body weight. Because each person will will respond in a different way according to your body weight. I know with the other classic psychedelics, they don't do that so much. But I think um, with lots of psychiatric drugs, they do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So phase two will then move on to, we'll look at the best, the, the sort of maximum tolerated dose and the sort of ideal target dose. And then move on to phase two, offering that dose to opioid dependent individuals and then assess again safety tolerability and efficacy so this this first co this first study phase 1 is 30 participants and then hopefully there'll be 80 participants among opioid users mm -hmm. so this is really the first well i mean there's obviously the ICS study going on but this is yeah this is one of the first phase 1 and phase 2 Mm -hmm. going together mm -hmm. and especially doing all the cardiac monitoring which is really crucial i think to getting ibogaine licensed mm -hmm. so now let's go to this world of the clinics i think you mentioned in the beginning that there's maybe over 100 that we know about around the world mm -hmm. i mean they seem to show up a lot i think in in mexico and is it costa rica and sometimes the caribbean 
Um, but I guess they've also been in the UK and the Netherlands, Canada, et cetera. Um, what do we know about this network? I mean, are, are there are there chains of ibogaine clinics where one person or, or owner owns a whole bunch of them in different places? Uh, uh, does anybody have a kind of list? Is there a directory of these clinics anywhere? Uh, do some of them have fantastic reputations that have been around for many years? What, what can you tell us? Yeah, I've never heard about a directory, but that's not a bad idea. Um, uh-huh. I and, and I've not heard of chains either, but it's possible that there may be, you know, a, cl- a clinic. And I think I might have heard that there's, you know, some business that has a couple of clinics in Mexico, but there's, yeah, there's not chains yet. I mean, Universal Ibogaine, I think, is is attempting to do that. So they're working in Canada and they will be conducting clinical trials in Canada, but that is their idea, is to create sort of a medicalized clinical model and have clinics around the world. So at the moment, it's more individual clinics with a sort of cluster in Mexico, Costa Rica, like you said, more informal treatment providers around Europe, not so much clinics. There's a clinic in Portugal, Tabula Rasa, um, and then there's obviously individual providers as well in Mexico and Canada. There's also clinics in Canada uh, and South Africa and Brazil. So in Brazil and Canada and South Africa and New Zealand, actually, Ibogaine's been put on the kind of prescription drug list, which means doctors can prescribe it. So it can, yeah, it can be prescribed in a clinic. So they're obviously, that's an easier legal situation for clinics to develop in. And then Mm -hmm. in Mexico, there are a number of clinics and they get licensed as rehab clinics, really not licensed for Ibogaine use because Ibogaine is not a licensed medicine in Mexico, but um, it's not regulated. So there are places where like government, some kind of regulatory officials are actually checking up on these things or where they need to look at the whole protocol and give their approval? Yeah. And they definitely, the authorities, local authorities are aware of what the clinics are doing. In these places. Mm-hmm. And these are all either places where they're on the prescription drug list or where it's unregulated, it's not a scheduled drug. So obviously in the US, Ibogaine is a schedule one drug. No one would get away with doing anything like that there. Uh, in the UK, mm-hmm. we have the Psychoactive Substance Act, which means that it's legal, it would be legal to consume um, Ibogaine or Iboga, but not legal to administer. So clinics are definitely not legal in the UK and there's no clinics up and running here. Um, mm-hmm. And then you know, Holland, there's a gray area. So shops openly selling iboga and iboga extracts and providers working. Yeah. So there's, and, and then there's mm-hmm. other countries in Europe where it's banned, like in the United States, um, Italy, France. In New Zealand, I saw a pop up. Is it legal in New Zealand? Is anything happening there? Well, so that's the same New Zealand. I, I think I just included it, but maybe I didn't. New Zealand is the same as prescription drugs. So you can, yeah, you can legally prescribe Ibogaine in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are some clinics there. There are a couple of clinics there that I know of. There may be more. And in terms of the international drug control system, uh, which has banned some of the psychedelics, uh, where is Ibogaine in that? It's left out? So it's not, it's not a scheduled drug in the UN conventions. Mm-hmm. So that eases things up, I see. Mm. Well, but in, in individual countries it is, so it doesn't necessarily right. ease it up. Yeah. Right, right. Depends it depends where you are. I see. Mm. I see. And and um and then the Caribbean, I saw in fact I know uh, the son of a friend of mine um had a successful Ibogaine treatment in the Caribbean. Is it just is it a bunch of different islands or is it St. Kitts or So Deborah Mash had a clinic in St. Kitts. So that that was running for a number of years and she published a paper on on the detoxification, opioid, opioid detoxification, 277 participants, I think, and mm-hmm. had had remarkable results. So she's that was that's the kind of longest standing Ibogaine clinic licensed in I a way. I see. Yeah. Explain to our to our listeners who the significance of, of Dr. Deborah Mash and all this. So Deborah Mash is the is a neuroscientist who's been involved in you know trying to develop ibogaine as a treatment for addiction for years 25 26 years so and she's currently running the study that i'm working on in in london she managed to get nida back in the national institute on drug abuse in the states get nida backing for 
phase one studies in 94, I think, in 1994 in the United States. And they administered, I think, up to two milligrams per kilogram. And the study ran for a short while and then terminated. And she then set up her clinic in St. Kitts and carried on treating people and doing lots of research on Ibogaine and has really never, you know, she's really kind of never given up bringing this to market and ensuring access for addicts to mm -hmm. this treatment. I met Deborah Mash, I think, 25 years ago when I was lobbying and trying to raise awareness of Ibogaine in the UK. And we invited her over and took her to lecture at various places, trying to sort of open the ears and eyes of various addiction agencies to the potential of Ibogaine and various research operations. But, you know, we didn't get anywhere. And I think it's been a really long, hard fight. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me. <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Most of my encounter with Ibogaine was really beginning in the early 90s from the activist side. I mean, you mentioned earlier Howard Lotsoff, you know, and Howard's, you know, experience as a 19-year-old realizing that Ibogaine had eliminated the withdrawal symptoms for him and, and other friends uh, associated with their heroin addiction. And in fact, mm -hmm. I think in recognition of his work, my organization, Drug Policy Alliance, awarded him a big award shortly before he died some years ago. But then it was also the, the yippie activist, uh, 
Dana Beal. It yeah. was the Israeli fellow uh, Boaz Wachtel, who's, mm-hmm. you know, then starts the Israeli Greenleaf Party to try to legalize marijuana, but who's administering lots of treatments. And Bob Sisko, another activist mm-hmm. who, in fact, just died recently. I just was at his memorial service in New York a few months ago. But this set of activists, you know, what was their role in all of this? And, and how much were they joined by others around the world? Well, so we really wouldn't know about uh, the potential, you know, therapeutic potential of Ibogaine for addiction if it wasn't for them, if it wasn't for Howard and Norma really, you know, trying to spread the word and raise awareness because of their own experience, but then because of the experience of others that they administered Ibogaine to or that they, you know, showed other addicts how to help other addicts and this kind of addict self-help movement grew. And Bob Sisko obviously started up ICASH, the International Coalition for Addict Self-Help, I think that's right, which was really based in uh, the Netherlands. So there was a kind of connection between New York and the Netherlands, Rotterdam specifically, I think, this lay network of people, um, addicts helping addicts, really, and, you know, subculture of Ibogaine treatment providers, people who had gone through it themselves, then helping other people and so forth. And, you know, they organized conferences, they lobbied government bodies. Um, Howard Lotsoff obviously took out a series of patents in the mid 80s and, you know, managed to have conversations with NIDA. I think he, it was, you know, his meeting with Deborah that that helped kickstart Deborah's interest and, and Deborah's movement with Ibogaine. So really this this whole kind of movement is is all thanks to them and they really deserve to be massively honored. You know, this area of the for-profit companies, which are all, you know, there's now obviously many, many of them and they're funding university research centers. And I've read that a tie, which may be the most well-financed of all of the investors is looking at this and that MindMed um, has also been taking a look, although I think they're looking at a synthetic derivative of Ibogaine called 18MC. Mm. I know of some others, um, but is that where the funding and the push is coming from now? Uh, and That's if so, yeah. what's your thoughts about all that? Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely where the push is coming from. Obviously, yeah, you've got Demerex and Atai. They've they're collaborating on the study in the UK, and you've got. I'm not quite sure who's funding the studies in Brazil, actually. But yeah, it's it's private money coming. You know, it's corporate money coming in and and really mobilizing these studies and providing the kind mm-hmm. of money that's needed to take these mm-hmm. compounds further. I think. Um, and and as, obviously, Ibogaine can, I mean, can, I mean, Howard, lots of years ago, decades ago, had these patents about the use of Ibogaine for treatment. Those have now expired. Mm-hmm. So I imagine and Ibogaine itself cannot be patented, I imagine, at this time. So at this point, is it about, you know, uh, trying to get patents on the derivatives or on, we talked about before, uh, nor Ibogaine, you know, the, the basic substance yeah, that Ibogaine no- becomes when it goes to the human body? Yeah, yeah, there's noribogaine, there's derivatives, there's there's treatment protocols. There'll probably be technology associated with the treatment that will be patented. Um, mm-hmm. Hey, I'm also full disclosure here. Um, there's another new startup, um, a company called uh, Ibogacine. I had Boaz Wachtel, who was in New York, visiting me. And he said, Ethan, I'm starting this company. Uh, you know, you want to be in the advisory board? And I said, well, I guess so. It sounds interesting. <laughs> so that thing is just look at, you know, launching now, Ibogacine. I, I but what they're going to be looking at, I think, is less focused on addiction treatment and looking at treatment of other things. You know, their, their materials say that they want to look at the, using Ibogaine for dealing with things like gastrointestinal stuff and autoimmune disease and sleep disorders and maybe cancer and neurogenerative diseases. And I've heard it talked about vis-a-vis Parkinson's as well. So what do you know about the value or potential value of Ibogaine for treating not just addiction, but other types of mental conditions or even these physical ones? Yeah, so I did talk to Boaz, actually, and I did. I, I am aware of Ibogacine. Um, and it's, you know, obviously my background's ethnobotany, so it's very interesting because this is really ethnomedicine that they're taking forward, looking at the traditional use of Iboga in its traditional context in Gabon and, and medicinal uses they have for it there, which are this gastrointestinal um, issues and the other ones you mentioned. So I think among treatment providers, you know, there's been all sorts of anecdotal reports about the immune boosting effects, you know, even 
dare I say it, you know, people were speculating about its potential in low doses again, in sort of microdoses for COVID and respiratory conditions. So I think I think this is kind of a nascent field, and I'm sure people will start looking at different applications of it. And personally, I've been very interested in its potential application for Parkinson's. In fact, that's kind of what got me back into Ibogaine after a, after a long break from it, because I kind of had, you know, put down the addiction, not thinking it wasn't really moving and it wasn't going to get anywhere. And, and also my life kind of changed and addiction didn't seem so, you know, sort of present and relevant to me and things were kind of stalled in terms of research and then I got invited to one of these conferences by Dana in 2017 and I watched a man give a presentation on having taken microdoses of well low, very low doses of ibogaine for his Parkinson's and having had remarkable results really in attenuation of, of symptoms and you know at that time my mother got diagnosed with Alzheimer's and my stepfather a year later. So I've been very sort of focused on neurodegenerative conditions and the potential applications of psychedelics in this area. And I, I'm, I'm watching very keenly. In fact, when I was working at the Beckley Foundation, I was really trying to encourage interest in that. Mm -hmm. Now, Hattie, you mentioned earlier that, you know, your life had changed vis-a-vis -vis addiction, and that was in part why you're looking at some of these other uses. For you, was the initial entry into Ibogaine as somebody like Howard Lotsoff who used it and found it transformative, or, or did it come about in other ways? Well, so I, I first heard about Ibogaine, I guess, in the sort of mid-90s, but it wasn't until the late 90s that I, I got more directly involved. And that was actually sort of coincidentally, I just got asked to organize a series of conferences on Ibogaine. I had been involved myself with ayahuasca. I was much more interested in ayahuasca as a psychedelic. I had spent several years researching it as an anthropology student and um, participating in rituals and experimenting with it. And I had found that had really pulled me out of my um, addictive kind of patterns and tendencies. So I had had, uh, during my teenage years and kind of early adulthood, consumed a lot of drugs, been very involved in the drug scene. I'd gone into it with ayahuasca and I'd done my work, so to speak, with ayahuasca to resolve a cocaine. And I, I had a kind of cocaine and alcohol habit. But I had witnessed lots of my friends OD. I had lost several friends from addiction. So addiction was very sort of prevalent in my life. I'd also had lots of friends um, have psychotic episodes from various drugs. And so when I heard about Ibogaine, even though I no longer, you know, was in the kind of midst of any addiction, a substance addiction, um, I was obviously very interested in how it could help my friends and how it could help those around me. When I did take it personally, I was addicted to tobacco still, and it did help me um, quit my tobacco addiction. But I have to preface this with it only lasted for a year. So uh -huh. I, had a, I had a good 12 months with no tobacco, and then I relapsed. Um, and then I carried on smoking for another, I don't know how many years, but then managed to stop, you know, uh -huh. probably with the use of uh -huh. other psychedelics. Mm. When you think about, you know, compare and contrast how they're similar, how they're different between ayahuasca and iboga, ibogaine, um, what stands out for you? First, in terms of talking about the experience itself. Um, so the experience itself, I, I think, you know, they're very distinct. Obviously, ibogaine is much, much longer lasting. And like I said earlier, you know, characterized by this more sort of memory recall, dreamlike visions, whereas ayahuasca, you know, especially at sort of strong doses and uh, kind of peak experience can be much more about ego dissolution and, um, you know, liquefying consciousness, connection with everything around you, oneness, utter change in your sense of proprioception, where your body ends and begins, where you end and begin. Um, so there's that, there's definitely that difference. You don't have that going on with the Ibogaine. Mm -hmm. I see. And in terms of ayahuasca is also typically done in a kind of group setting, whereas Ibogaine is almost entirely done in a solo setting, right? 
Yeah, that's a massive difference. Yeah, so uh, ayahuasca is usually done, although some people do do one-on-one ayahuasca sessions, but it is usually done in a group setting, in a more kind of ceremonial setting. Although again, iboga, depending on whether you take ibogaine or iboga, there is a very elaborate iboga ritual ceremony, group ceremony. If you're following more the tradition of the Bwiti, that is, again, a community communal experience. Many people, a lot of music, uh, dancing, contact you know then then it's so if you go to the traditional use of a boga it's more similar i suppose to the ayahuasca mm-hmm. apart from the fact that it is used as an initiate you know traditionally as an initiation ritual in high doses or in low doses you know um, more for the kind of ceremony prayer prayers night all night vigils that they do as part of their religion yeah, I think I got we got into this a bit on the episode with Dimitri last year because he actually did go to Gabon, was initiated into the Bwiti. And I think, you know, when we were talking earlier, Hattie, about the uses for things other than addiction, right? I think a fair bit of the awareness of that comes from what was happening with the Bwiti and their use of iboga. Is that right? Yes, definitely. So iboga is used, you know, like I said, like in large doses for initiation, contact with the ancestors, spiritual guidance, healing. But in low doses, it's used, yeah, for a variety of illnesses as an ethnomedicine, you know, as a medicinal herb. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, one of the other issues that keeps emerging more and more now, right, is what are the rights and and responsibilities toward indigenous peoples, whether it's with ayahuasca coming from the Amazon region of Latin America, whether it's with peyote, and of course with iboga and the buiti. And there is this Nagoya Protocol, I guess, a sort of international treaty that many nations are signing on to. Um, but what can you tell us about that vis-a-vis Iboga and how it compares to what's going on with the, uh, with the other substances? You know, with this whole issue of kind of inter- indigenous intellectual property rights, um, it's in a way sort of easier to pinpoint with Iboga and Equatorial Africa. You know, there's a long tradition of use. We know the various groups that use it. So this idea of kind of benefit sharing should theoretically be more straightforward, although there's no sort of, um, there are no homogenous indigenous groups and there are various groups doing using it in different ways. And so how you would coordinate that benefit sharing is going to be somewhat complicated. I'm sure um, there is a group already operating Blessings of the Forest, headed up by someone called Jan Guignon, and they are trying to ensure benefit sharing and the sustainability of iboga, because obviously, you know, iboga is a valuable natural product in Gabon, and there's a lot of poaching and wild harvesting of, of iboga, and if there's growing demand around the world, this is, you know, the issue of sustainability is only going to grow, and so the Blessings of the Forest are very much um, interested in setting up sustainable plantations and working with people to ensure sustainability and to ensure that um, you know there's no illegal export of iboga out the country. You can't. I mean, actually, iboga is a national cultural heritage in Gabon, so it is illegal to export it. Um, but there's you know. There's various ways around that. Uh, very interesting. You know, you mentioned earlier, just to switch again, uh, microdosing. I mean, this has become such a phenomenon. So what is the story? I mean, uh, there's obviously microdosing. There's mini dosing. There's what you call the flood dosing or, or you know, macro dosing. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is there the microdosing? What can you tell us about that? Are more and more people doing it or trying it that way? Well, I mean, microdosing of all substances has become very fashionable, right? People are microdosing LSD, mm-hmm. people are microdosing psilocybin. Definitely there is a growing movement of people microdosing ibogaine and iboga, and not just for things like Parkinson's and neurodegenerative conditions, just for well-being. You know, between the 30s and 60s, a French company sold Lambarine, which was effectively a kind of microdose of ibogaine as a stimulant and antidepressant. And, and so... Um, for kind of stimulant effects, mood effects. Yeah, there's definitely a growing movement of people microdosing ibogaine for that. And then also people microdosing post, you know, let's say they went in for uh, detoxification with ibogaine, then a provider might well recommend to do some microdosing afterwards. So you can have kind of Mm -hmm. microdosing, which would be maybe, 
you know, 10 to 50 milligrams of ibogaine, then you can have kind of what I would call sort of low dose, 100 to 200 milligrams. Then you might have a booster, slightly higher where you'd have more of an experience, um, more kind of three to 400 milligrams. There's there's a variety of dosing protocols basically, but yeah, I, I think microdosing will become more popular, especially if we if we discover more benefits from it, basically. And just even anecdotally, I mean, when we talk, say, about that intermediate level, what, what maybe mini dosing, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. that people might be using for spiritual insight and awareness, like they're doing with ayahuasca or mescaline or, or psilocybin. From an anecdotal perspective, can you compare and contrast the the use of ibogaine at that level, sort of the you know intermediate level, with people's experience with ayahuasca or other substances? Yeah, it's not as visual as ayahuasca. So I think that, yeah, I probably could have gone on a lot more about the differences between them, but ayahuasca, you know, can be very visual. Uh, There's a lot of physical um, sensations, physical purging, um, euphoria. Whereas with ibogaine, the visual component at a a low-mid dose, you know, is not very pronounced. Some people may have it, but generally not so pronounced. It's more kind of introspective, interesting, thoughtful. Yeah, I mean, I like to look at Ibogaine, you know, in a sense, like a kind of um, x-ray of the psyche and emotional field, you know. And and, and at the flood dose, that's a very intense one, and you get to see absolutely everything. And at a lower mm-hmm. dose, you know, it you'd get a, a less 3D approach. What about know? the memory recall element? I think people do get memory recall from it, yeah. Not at the, at the intermediate doses. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, huh. Yeah. I mean, at least from what I've seen, but not well, as pronounced and not as to, visual. <laughs> you're getting me intrigued to try it at that kind of lower level mm. um, or med- intermediate <laughs> level and see what exactly that's like. And is there any advice you can offer to our listeners if they're actually looking to find a place to have an ibogaine treatment for themselves or somebody they care about? I mean, how should they proceed? I don't know if you can recommend any. Um, How can you best answer the question? I think, like I said in the beginning, definitely look for medically supervised treatment providers, you know, um, where there's cardiac support on site. Make sure that all the preparation is done adequately. Um, Make sure that, you know, they've taken a thorough sort of inventory of your health and health history. Are there places or websites where people report their experiences and name the clinics where they were so people can evaluate based upon the consumer's uh, experience? I think if you dig around, definitely you can find consumer experiences, yeah, writ, um, mm-hmm. written up, and the various sites, you know, show videos. I could list a number of clinics, but I also don't have personal experience at those clinics, and I don't have, mm-hmm. and 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 then there would be many I might leave out that I also don't have personal experience of. But go for the medically supervised ones. There are several of them in Mexico. There's one in Portugal, you know, in um, South Africa, Canada, Brazil. I'm sure there's yeah. Just mm-hmm. just make sure there's a good cardiac team and medical supervision. Okay, that sounds like good advice. Well, Hattie, I have learned an immense amount from our conversation here. I hope our listeners have as well. So I just want to thank you ever so much for joining me and my listeners on Psychoactive to talk about Ibogaine. Thank you very much, Ethan. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to all the listeners, too. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman, 
It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Gieses, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Adelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with Ellen Scanlon, host of the podcast How to Do the Pot, which focuses on women and cannabis. Every woman should have a weed lube in her bedside table. Just every woman. <laughs> so cannabis lube, it's, you know, just a serum, and I highly, highly recommend it. Um, this goes back to the pelvic region and the uh, endocannabinoid system and having more receptors. And it will not make you feel intoxicated, but it will bring more blood flow to the area. And that increases sensuality, it increases touch. And so the weed lube just is a, as a topical. I give it as to friends as a gift a lot. And I, I highly, highly recommend it. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.